Open your Bibles up to John chapter 3. Uh, if you need a Bible, you can grab one from the bookshelf over here, or the table back there. If you have one of those Bibles from the bookshelf or the table, it's on page 943. We're going to be looking at the first 21 verses in John chapter 3 this morning. And uh, it's been a few weeks since we were in John's gospel, so just a, a quick recap of where we left off. We're continuing a section that started in chapter 2 uh, and goes through the end of chapter 4 that, that's bookended by these by these two things that take, these, these miracles that take place in, uh, in the town of Cana. This section focuses on replacing the old order of things and, uh, with the new order through Jesus Christ by showing how Christ's grace far surpasses the grace of the Jewish traditions that, that came through Moses, right? In chapter 1, uh, John said, we have received grace upon grace. For the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And, and uh, uh, chapter 3 today uh, focuses specifically on uh, a Jewish rabbi and the need for something greater than instruction, okay? We, we've seen how, how um, Jesus transformed this, the ceremonial purification at the wedding uh, in Cana by, by turning the water into wine and, uh, and using the, the jars for purification there, and, and how he transformed the temple uh, by, by, by essentially telling them that he was the temple that needed to be destroyed and, uh, and raised in three days. And now we're going to look at this, this institution of the Jewish rabbi. In this chapter, we're going to see the, the difference between human's heart and God's heart, and if we pay attention, it's, it's in that difference then that we'll see the greater need that we all have as human beings. And so as we get ready to, to prepare to hear the word of the Lord together, I want to I pray and, and ask God one more time to help us. Father, we thank you that you have come to us through your Son, that you've sent your Spirit to us, you've given us your word, everything that we need in order to not only not only know you and understand you as much as you'll allow us to, but that we can rejoice in all that you've given to us. And so we pray this morning that Christ himself would be exalted, Christ himself would be uh, our central in our central view, and that we would be changed. Not just that we know more about him, but that we would be transformed by him. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're going we're gonna to watch an expert teacher of God's word wrestle with understanding the words that God himself is speaking to him, right? Jesus is God. We know this. We've, we've seen this multiple ways. And, and one of those things that, that Nicodemus, this teacher, will struggle comprehending is, is how God saves and who God saves, and if we're honest, we'll admit that we share in that struggle with Nicodemus. Sometimes we have, the, have a hard time understanding and, and accepting God's words as, and his ways, right? We see what he says. We read what he says. We might even know what he says, but, but it's hard to accept what he says and then actually live according to that. Nicodemus is going to struggle here, and we may struggle along with him. You see, when it comes to salvation, we're prone to want to set the parameters. We're, we're prone to want to, to, to sort of take God's word and make it say what we want it to say. 
But God has made those parameters clear. And so here's our, here's our main idea, our main point for this morning. Jesus makes this abundantly clear. In order to have eternal life, you must be born again and you must believe. In order to have eternal life, you must be born again and you must believe. We'll look at each one of these things separately and see how they work together. To be sure, you cannot have one without the other. You, you can't be born again and not believe, and you can't believe and not be born again. Both are necessary, right? But how do they work together to secure salvation for sinners? That's the question we need to answer. So in our passage today, in the interaction between Nicodemus and, and Jesus, we'll see God's patient heart to draw sinners to himself and give them new hearts to believe in him. And this is, this, is the, this is the struggle. The struggle is to understand God's heart through God's ways. Sometimes the way God works makes it hard for us to see, see, see his, his heart for us. And this morning my prayer is that in Christ's words, we will see clearly and abundantly God's loving heart for heartless people. So before we jump into the first part of chapter 3, I want to back up and, and read the last few verses of chapter 2 because they're important for this context that we're in, all right? Uh, and, and maybe you remember these from a, a few weeks ago when we were in chapter 2. But here's what it says in uh, verse 23 of chapter 2. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, that being Jesus, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about a man for he himself knew what was in a man. Now, we've already, we've already uh, read about Jesus' first sign in Cana where he turned water into wine and, and, and Jesus also performed more signs while he was in Jerusalem. John, John doesn't elaborate on those, but, but it's clear that, that there were other things that he did and he notes that many people believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe their belief, right? This is what he says. Because Jesus knew what was in man, he could see the true thoughts and intentions of their hearts. That's important for us to understand as we look at the opening verses of chapter 3. So let's, let's dig in this morning. Let's hear the Holy Spirit-directed words of John in chapter 3. First three verses we'll look at. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs unless God were with him. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Right after John said that Jesus knew what was in a heart or what was in the heart of, of, of a man, he begins this next section with, with this line. There was a man. There was a man. John's letting his readers know from the outset that Jesus knows this man better than this man knows himself or, than he, or that he knows Jesus. That ought to then make us pay attention even more to what Jesus has to say to this man this morning. That man's name was Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was... Uh, essentially the, the Jewish Supreme Court made up of 70 men who ruled on religious and legal and, and, and uh, political matters. The Pharisees were a small but influential group of Jews uh, who were concerned with the authority of, of God's law 
and a strict adherence to it. And so Nicodemus was, was this devout leader of the Jews and a teacher of the law who was concerned not only with the careful obedience to God, but also with the coming Messiah and the kingdom of God and, the, and how the Messiah would come and establish that kingdom uh, on earth is what he assumed by overthrowing Rome is what he assumed and setting Israel free. Nicodemus was intrigued by Jesus. But notice what it says. He came to Jesus at night because not all of the Pharisees were intrigued by Jesus the way he was. Nicodemus was nervous about the repercussions of being seen having an an extended conversation with Jesus and learning from him rather than opposing him, which is what the rest of them wanted to do. But it wasn't the darkness of night that Jesus was concerned with. It was the darkness of Nicodemus' heart. And through that concern, we'll see Jesus' Jesus's heart for Nicodemus. This encounter is different than Jesus' encounters with other Pharisees. Nicodemus may have come to Jesus, but it was Jesus who was drawing Nicodemus to himself. And we'll see this not only throughout this chapter, but throughout the, the Gospel of John. We'll see Nicodemus show up again. In chapter 19, Nicodemus showed a lot of humility and respect when he came to Jesus and called him rabbi. As a teacher of Israel himself, Nicodemus was, was treating Jesus at, at, at minimum as an equal and, and maybe even deferring or beginning to defer his own authority to Jesus's and say, well, I'm a teacher, but, but I'll learn from you, Right? But what did he not call Jesus? He didn't call Jesus the Messiah. He wasn't totally convinced of that yet, but he was convinced that Jesus was someone worth listening to because it was clear to Nicodemus that Jesus had God's approval since he was able to perform all of these signs that we see, Nicodemus says. So essentially Nicodemus told Jesus, if God hadn't first enabled you, you would be unable to perform these signs that we see. Remember, Nicodemus doesn't know yet that Jesus is God. He sees a man standing in front of him. And any man who claims to speak on behalf of God needs to have proof that he has God's approval. But because Jesus knew what was in the heart of man, he got right to the heart of the matter with Nicodemus. And so in verse 3, Jesus essentially replies to Nicodemus, listen, If God didn't first enable you, you would be unable to see the kingdom of God. Note what Jesus didn't say. Let's not speed over this. What he did not say was, unless you see the kingdom of God, you can be born again. What did he say? He said, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. The word order is important here. What Nicodemus was looking for is impossible to find without new birth. In the Greek, that phrase born again can literally mean either to be born a second time or to be born from above. Okay, Maybe your translation says from above. There's probably a footnote in there at least. It's likely that Jesus intended both of these meanings because John's gospel over and over, we'll see this, is, is full of these words or these phrases that have double meanings. We'll see another one here shortly uh, as we move through this chapter. And it's clear from the next verses that, that Nicodemus 
completely misunderstood what Jesus meant. Remember the motif of misunderstanding? This is something we'll see over and over again in John's gospel as well. Nicodemus is clueless here. Let's keep going. Look at verse 4. How can anyone be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Nicodemus couldn't comprehend a category of of birth outside of the natural physical realm, and his questions made logical sense in that line of thinking, right? None of us can can imagine a grown person entering the womb of of their mother again and being reborn. Once again in verse 5, Jesus redirected Nicodemus to the greater issue Hear the words that are used in the same. Jesus, or Nicodemus is talking about entering the womb. What is Jesus telling Nicodemus? It's not about a person's ability. It's not about the possibility to enter the womb. It's about a person's ability to enter the kingdom. It's not about the womb, Nicodemus. It's about the kingdom. And just like you can't enter the womb a second time, it's physically impossible it's spiritually impossible to enter the kingdom of God unless you are first spiritually reborn. You need new life, Nicodemus. You need new birth. You need a new heart. Jesus puts it that, this way. You need to first be born of water and the spirit. Now, Jesus is talking to a man who knows the scriptures. Let's not forget this. Nicodemus is a rabbi. He's a teacher uh, our Old Testament was his Bible. As a rabbi, as a, as a teacher, first of all, he would have had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized, right? He's already got us there. And second of all, he would be familiar. It's required. He'd be familiar with the entirety of the Old Testament, of their Bible. This is, this is what they continued to look to, to, to know how to live and, and to anticipate the coming of the Messiah, so when Jesus said that a person needs to be born of water and the Spirit, he's pointing Nicodemus to something he should know. The new covenant promise that God made through the prophet Ezekiel about what would happen when the Messiah comes. Listen to Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. God says, I will also sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. There's water. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. There's the spirit. I will remove your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my, my ordinance. Cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. The arrival of the Messiah would bring about a spiritual rebirth that washes God's people clean from their sin, that gives them new life and new hearts and enables them to obey God through his own life-giving spirit who lives inside of them. This is not just an Old Testament promise. This is fulfilled in Christ. The Apostle Paul actually brings this, this reality, this glorious reality to fruition with his words to Titus in Titus chapter 3. Verses three through eight, he says, for we too were once foolish, 
disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the washing, the water of regeneration, new birth, and renewal by the Holy Spirit. There's the Spirit. He poured out his Spirit on us. I will put my Spirit within you. He poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, Paul tells Titus. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. I will cause you to obey my statutes and my commands. These are good and profitable for everyone, Paul says. Do you hear the heart of God in, in, in the words of Ezekiel and Paul? Listen, it's because God is a kind and merciful, a loving and gracious, a generous and life-giving God that he makes our inability known to us so that we, we look at him then. We look to him to do what we cannot do for ourselves. We have to know that we can't do it or we'll just keep trying. The only reason that we're able to even see, let alone enter the kingdom of God, is because we have been born of, the water, of, of water and the Spirit. Entrance into the kingdom of God is dependent upon spiritual rebirth, not physical rebirth. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit, Jesus told Nicodemus in verse 6. I like the way one study Bible paraphrases this. Uh, I think it's helpful says, humans produce more spiritually dead humans. Only God's spirit can produce spiritual life. You know why that study Bible can say that? Because Jesus actually says it in chapter 6 of John. We're going to see this. He's going to tell his disciples, the spirit is the one who gives life. You know what he says after that? The flesh doesn't help at all. The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. This reality must have been a shocking blow to Nicodemus as a man who was physically born into the lineage of God's chosen people, the Jews, the Israelites, right? And who was deeply committed to a life of piety. He thought that he was following God. Jesus' words baffled Nicodemus. Look at his response in verse 7. Or, or Jesus continues on, sorry. Nicodemus, do not be amazed that I told you you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. In verse 7, Jesus told Nicodemus, don't be amazed that I told you, singular, that you, plural, must be born again. Don't be amazed that I told you, Nicodemus, that you all must be born again. Jesus wasn't, saying, uh, wasn't just saying that this was true for, for Nicodemus. He was saying that this was true for the rest of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. In fact, the necessity of rebirth is true for everybody. It's true for all people. You must be born again. 
These are the words of Jesus. But it's impossible for everyone unless God gives them the new birth that they need. You must be born from above. We need a second birth, and we cannot get it. It has to come to us. Same Greek word is used in verse 8 to refer both to wind and spirit. We can't fully understand the wind, let alone control it. Comes and goes wherever and whenever uh, it, without our permission or our instruction. We can't even see the wind, right? I've tried, it doesn't work. But we can see the effects of the wind. If you've been paying attention at all in the last 24 hours, let alone two weeks, you can see the effects of the wind. You know it's there. You can't stop it, right? Just keep raking those leaves and see what happens. Same is true with the work of the Holy Spirit. We can't fully understand him, nor can we control him. He's not at our beck and call. The Spirit comes and goes wherever and whenever he pleases without our permission, without our instruction. You know why? We're going to see later in John's gospel that the Father who sent the Son also together with the Son sent the Spirit. So that means the Spirit it does everything that the Father has given him to do, not that we want him to do. He works according to the Father's plan, and in God's great patience, he draws unbelievers to himself and gives them the new birth that, so that they can believe in his Son. Sometimes he does that quickly. Sometimes he does that slowly. We can't see the Spirit, but we can see the effects of the Spirit. We can see the curiosity that arises in someone's heart as they want to know more about who Jesus is and, and try to understand what, it, what, what this, 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 this book is telling us about him. Why do I need him? Nicodemus, it, it says, John says, Nicodemus came to Jesus. But if we're paying attention to what Jesus is saying about how this works, we need to also understand that Nicodemus did not just come to Jesus on his own. Jesus was drawing him to himself in the power of the Spirit. Nicodemus would never come otherwise. One of the most obvious pieces of evidence that we see of the Spirit's work in someone's life is that they've entrusted themselves to Jesus Christ through faith in his life and death and resurrection. Those who have been given new birth by God's Spirit will not come to Jesus and call him rabbi. They will come to Jesus and call him redeemer. Listen, this is why we're not called Rabbi Community Church. We don't come here for more knowledge. We come here to encounter Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, and to be changed by him. But Nicodemus wasn't there yet. He literally could not believe the words that Jesus was saying. The words that Rabbi Jesus was saying. But Jesus is a patient Redeemer, and he was lovingly helping Nicodemus come to the end of himself. Look at verse 9. How can these things be? Asked Nicodemus. Isn't that incredible? The teacher who, who would probably have many words about all of God's law is reduced 
to a five-word question. Just can you imagine him throwing his hands up? How, how can these things be? I don't understand it. Keep going, verse 10. Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Jesus replied. Truly I tell you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, we know you are a teacher. That's how this started, right? But Jesus' response in verse 10 put Nicodemus' own status as a rabbi in question. Are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Come on, Nicodemus. Jesus essentially went on to say, listen, you speak of what you think you know. We speak of what we actually know. Yet you don't believe us. The we in verse 11 is most likely referring to God the Father and God the Son. Why? Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus about the things that God had already spoken to Israel about in the Old Testament. The living word, the logos of God, is communicating the written word of God to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, these are the things you're supposed to be knowing and teaching, but you don't have a clue. You don't even believe it. These were scriptures that Nicodemus was supposed to be an expert at knowing and teaching, but Nicodemus couldn't wrap his mind around what Jesus was saying. His complete lack of understanding wasn't just his problem alone, though. All the yous, Y-O-U, again, in verse 12, are plural. We speak of what we know, but you, plural, you guys, you all, you don't believe it. Nicodemus's inability was all of the Pharisees' inability. Intellectual understanding will not lead them to belief. They all needed new birth. And what they needed is what we all need. New birth is a necessity for every human being if we're going to see and enter the kingdom of God. But the problem is that we're utterly unable to obtain that new birth ourselves. It comes from above. We can't go up to heaven and get it. It's beyond our reach. This is something we just have to see and admit. But there is one who can give it, the Son of Man. What Jesus said to Nicodemus here is something that we all need to hear. We do not have the ability to believe on our own, but Jesus has the ability to change our ability. And he has the authority to give us new birth from above. Why? Because he is from above. And not only does he have the ability and the authority, but also the heart to give us exactly what we need. Look at verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. Your translation might say, for God so loved the world. He gave his one and only Son that, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Nicodemus' last recorded words in this conversation are in verse 9. How can these things be? I'm out. 
I don't get it. This last section here, verses 14 through 21, are Jesus' answer to that question. And he began that answer by pointing Nicodemus back to a familiar event in Israel's history recorded in the book of Numbers. Again, one of the books that Nicodemus would have had memorized. During their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, um, the Israelites complained and grumbled against God a lot, right? And in this particular time, they, they blamed God for their misery, even though it was their own fault, their own disobedience, their own complaining and grumbling. And they accused him of bringing them out of, uh, out of Egypt in the wilderness to die instead of saving them. So how did God respond? Well, he responded by sending poisonous snakes among the people that bit them and killed them. Now, that might to us seem harsh, but this is the almighty God that they're talking to. The one who rescued them, not because they were worthy of it, but because he decided to in his great love for them. They don't even want it. God's response is divine judgment for their rebellion. That is in the good heart of a good God. If God does not respond to sin in a just way, there's no reason for us to follow that God, right? When the people realized their sin, they repented and they asked Moses to intercede with God on their behalf. And, and again, here's the heart of God. He doesn't say, nope, it's too late. He told Moses to make a snake out of a bronze out of bronze and hanging on a pole, and it would be his provision to save his people from death. Anyone who was bitten and then looked at the snake hanging on the pole in faith would be rescued. God saved them from physical death and his divine judgment in that circumstance. Jesus told Nicodemus, just as the snake was lifted up, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Did you catch that word? He didn't say, so the Son of Man might be lifted up. He said, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Must. This has to happen. Why? Because we have a greater need than to be rescued from physical death. We have a greater need than to be saved from divine judgment in a particular circumstance. We have a great need to be rescued from spiritual death and eternal judgment. We need new birth. And God said that our new birth must come through the death of his one and only son. A bronze statue doesn't have life in itself, but the Son of Man does. And the only way for us to be rescued from eternal death and eternal judgment is if the eternal Son of God dies in our place and receives our judgment in full. Just as the bronze snake was lifted up on a pole, Jesus would be lifted up on a cross. And now we must all look to the cross in faith, believing that Jesus is God's provision to rescue us from our sin and from his wrath. You must believe. You must be born again. And you must believe. Everyone who believes in Jesus in this way is rescued from eternal death and eternal judgment and has eternal life. These are the words of Jesus. This is his promise to us. Verse 16 is arguably the most well-known verse in all of Scripture. For God loved the world in this way. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We began this chapter by being reminded that Jesus knew what was in the heart of man. And now Jesus is showing us what's in the heart of God. And our two hearts could not be more different. 
the statement that was, has become almost mind-numbingly familiar to us would have been especially shocking to Nicodemus. It would have made sense to him if, if, Nicodem- if Jesus would have said, for God loved Israel in this way. For God so loved Israel. As a descendant of Israel, Nicodemus would have assumed that God loved the Jews and, and condemned the Gentiles because the Jews were God's chosen people and the Gentiles weren't. But not only did Jesus include non-Jews in the everyone who believes category in verses 15 and 16, he also included the Jews in the already condemned category in verse 18. Jews were not exempt from condemnation. They couldn't rely on their genealogy to save them. It's not about physical birth. It's about spiritual birth. Like everyone else, they had to rely on Jesus Belief in him is the only way to eternal life for anyone, including Nicodemus and the other religious leaders. Jesus had already lovingly warned him in verse 12 when he told Nicodemus, you don't believe. You don't believe. Nicodemus thought he believed, but Jesus didn't believe his belief. Right? Because Jesus knew what was in Nicodemus' heart. But the crux of Jesus' words to Nicodemus are the crux of John's gospel message. You remember chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You must believe. Nicodemus came to Jesus impressed by the signs he saw. But in love, Jesus pointed Nicodemus to his unbelief and warned him of condemnation and called him to true belief in Jesus Christ. You must believe. The reason why God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world is because the world is already condemned. Our condemnation happened in Genesis 3 with the rebellion in the garden. In Romans 3, Paul says that all, all, Jew and Gentile alike, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no distinction in condemnation and there's no distinction in salvation. Everyone, whether Jew or non-Jew, who doesn't believe in Christ will perish under the condemnation of eternal death. But everyone, whether Jew or non-Jew, who believes in Jesus Christ will not perish under the condemnation of eternal death, but have eternal life. And God brought that out about not only by lifting his son up on the cross, but also by lifting him up out of the grave. This is another double meaning here. In verse 14, the Son of Man must be lifted up. By being lifted up on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for the sins of everyone who believes in him, and he removed God's wrath from them forever. And by being lifted up out of the grave, he defeated the power of sin and death, and he gives eternal life to everyone who believes in him. So here's the question. Do you believe in him? Do you believe? Do you recognize that your sin makes you wholly unable, completely guilty before the Almighty God and condemns you to eternal death and judgment under his pure and holy wrath. Listen, you cannot learn your way into the kingdom of God by building up your knowledge. You cannot earn your way into the kingdom of God by stacking up your works. Jesus says it very clearly, you must be born again. You must be born again born from above, and you must look to Jesus and believe. You must be born again, and you must believe. So this morning, see the willing heart of God. 
See the willing heart of God to rescue you from death and give you life. Look at his great love to give us his one and only son. For God loved the world in this way. Look to the one who was lifted up on the cross and lifted up from the grave. Look to Jesus and believe. Maybe you've already done that. For those of us who do believe, what great assurance do we have in these words that Jesus spoke to Nicodemus? Everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. There's no caveat here. There's no footnote in your Bible. There's no small print, no disclaimer that says, offer subject to change without notice. Praise God for that, right? There's no, there's no clause hidden in this that says this promise is only good until the recipient screws up. Amen and amen and amen. Jesus' words here give us the promise that we will have all the grace that we need to keep plodding through this life of hardship with great hope. With great hope lasting hope until we reach the very real end of this temporary existence and we, we are lifted up. Into the glorious reality of forever joy. Forever joy in the place where tears like mine are dried from every eye because the river of life is flowing freely from the throne of God. but we'll still have our Nicodemus moments every now and then. We'll still make wrong assumptions about Jesus. We'll still be confused and have questions about what he says. We'll, we'll still sin against our Lord many times, even as born-again believers, but we will never, never, never be condemned for those failings and sins. Never. Why? Because Jesus already was. Because Jesus already was condemned in our place. Instead of condemnation, we'll receive conviction from the Holy Spirit who gave us new birth and washed us clean. Conviction that doesn't shame us, but shows us the futility of giving our affections away to things that will never satisfy us or give us life. But we won't just receive conviction from the Holy Spirit. We'll also receive comfort as he redirects our gaze firmly back onto Christ himself and reminds us of all that Jesus has done for us, we'll receive courage from the Holy Spirit to run to our Savior for forgiveness and return to walking in obedience to him as we rejoice in his great love for us. And we'll receive confidence from the Holy Spirit that God's promises are in fact true, that the day will come when we will see Christ's face. And we won't come to him at night. You know why? Because night will be no more. We will physically see and enter the kingdom of God where there's no need for the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the glory of God illuminates it. And its lamp is the lamb. And we will reign with him forever and ever. We may not be able to see the spirit but we can see the effects of the Spirit in our lives. Do you see him convicting? Do you see him comforting? Do you see him giving you courage and confidence? You ought to. 
He will, and he does. You know what helps us see? Light. Back in chapter 1, John told us that the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. In these last few verses, Jesus told Nicodemus, hey, that's me. I'm, the, I'm that light. Let's look at verses 19 and tw- through 21. This is the judgment, Jesus says to Nicodemus. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. God loved the world that hated him. He loved the world that was living in darkness and so he sent his son into it as the light. God gave his heart to heartless people. Why do people live in darkness? Jesus tells us, because they love it. Why do they love it? Because it hides their evil deeds. It covers them and it protects them from exposure. They love the cover of darkness because they're afraid of being found out. They see truth as the enemy, light as the danger, God as the aggressor. But the reality is that deception is the enemy, darkness is the danger, and they are the aggressors. I say they because we who believe in Jesus no longer live in darkness. But it's important to remember that we were once enslaved to it and we couldn't free ourselves from it. Otherwise, we may be tempted to think that we are better than those who still live in darkness as if somehow we contributed to where we're at now. As if somehow we were able to do what they are not able to do. We need to remember that like them, we too were once God's enemies, as Paul told Titus. Loving ourselves and our sin and hating him. But he sent the light to shine in our darkness and our darkness did not overcome the light. Instead, the light overcame us and gave us life. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, He, Jesus, has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into... Or, God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night under the cover of darkness so that he wouldn't be found out by the Pharisees, but he had already been found out by Jesus. Darkness is not dark to God. He sees all things and He knows all things. He knows what's in the heart of man, including Nicodemus, including you, including me. Jesus ended the conversation by telling Nicodemus, anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. In other words, we will only come to Christ if he first comes to us and gives us his light in place of our darkness, his life in place of our death. Love consists of this, John says elsewhere in one of his letters. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation, the turning away of God's wrath and satisfying God and and giving, giving giving him delight in us. John says we love because he first loved us. To live by the truth is to obey God's commands. And the Greek in verse 21 literally says anyone who does the truth. It's a parallel to anyone who does evil, anyone who does the truth. When we obey God's commands, it's not so that the light will come to us. It's because the light has come to us. 
and drawn us to himself. And when we live by the truth, we're showing not our work, but we're showing God's work in us. He has accomplished what we could never accomplish. He has made us what, what we must be, born again, born from above. We believe in him because he has awakened our hearts to do so. Until we remember that God gave us his love when we deserved his wrath, we won't be motivated to share this hope of the gospel with other people. A hardened heart toward those who live in darkness is not reflective of God's heart for you and me. Is there anybody you just hate? If you'd rather let people die in their sin than want them to be rescued from it, then you have not yet understood the heart of God. Or the love of God. Listen, God loved rebels and rule followers, idolaters and religious leaders, the outcast and the elite, fools and scholars, the greedy and the needy, unrighteous heathens and self-righteous hypocrites, oppressed ones and oppressing ones, the somebodies and the nobodies, the public servants and public enemies, politicians and taxpaying citizens, the old and the young, male and female, people from every ethnicity and era of human existence. God loved the world. And those of us who know the saving love of God should be motivated then by the sending love of God to go to those still in need of salvation as if God's heart to save us wasn't already incredible, he's also chosen to send us as his ambassadors who speak his words of life to dead hearts. We have no need to condemn others in their sin. They're already condemned. But we have great need to help them see the eternal consequences of remaining in it, to proclaim the life-giving hope that's found in Jesus Christ alone, and to beckon them to believe in him. If you haven't rejected God's saving love, then don't reject God's sending love. Who do you need to go to this week and tell them this good news about Jesus, to tell them about the heart of God? Maybe you're sitting there thinking, what does it matter? If God is the one that saves, if, if it's up to him, if I can't give anybody new birth, if he's the one that has to make people spiritually alive, won't he do it regardless of whether or not I share the gospel with somebody? If I can't change their heart, what difference do I make? Let me just encourage you with Paul's words from Romans 10. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from what is heard. And what is heard comes through the message about Jesus Christ. In his sovereign grace, the God who gives new birth has chosen to do so through the proclamation of the gospel message. By the way, Paul isn't talking about a preacher behind the pulpit here. You don't just get to pass that off on me. He's talking about believers proclaiming the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. Belief is proof of new birth, but no one can believe what they haven't heard. Some will hear and not believe. But don't stop proclaiming the gospel to them. Just because they don't believe right away doesn't mean they'll never believe. Don't miss Jesus' patience to draw Nicodemus to himself. Th this conversation doesn't end the way we hope it ends, right? Nicodemus is just baffled. It leaves us hanging. He may not have believed Jesus' words here during their nighttime conversation, but he believed them after he saw the Son of Man lifted up as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. 
Chapter 19, we'll see Nicodemus in broad daylight help take Jesus' body down from the cross and put it in the tomb. Listen, if you're a Pharisee, you don't touch a dead body and become ceremonially unclean for the Passover festival unless you've been changed. So keep proclaiming the gospel to your unbelieving friends and family, to your coworkers and classmates, because they must believe in order to be saved. But as you proclaim the gospel to them, pray to the God who alone has the authority and the ability to change hearts because they must be born again in order to believe and be saved. Ask God to wash them clean, to give them a new heart, to put his spirit inside them, and then trust his sovereign timing and his sovereign grace. God loved a world full of people who hated him and loved themselves. And he loved us in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, will not have eternal death, but have eternal life in him. This is the heart of God for heartless people. There's no greater love than this, and there's no other way to eternal life than this. In order to have eternal life, you must be born again, and you must believe. We all need new birth that enables faith. We all need a new heart, and it's in the loving heart of God to give new hearts to rebellious sinners and bring them to life through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of his one and only son. Praise God for that. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this gift of love in Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. We thank you for new life in him that we could never gain on our own. We thank you for your grace to make known to us our need and then make known to us your provision for that need. We pray, Lord, that you would change many hearts here in this community, in this school district, in this county, in this state, and on and on and on until we physically see Christ face to face, which you help us as we marvel at your, your saving love to go freely and joyfully in your sending love to display the heart of God for others that need to see and believe. We pray this all for the glory of Jesus. Amen.